السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Can someone just give me a quick mic check please جزاكم الله خير Can everyone hear me? Oh, is the sound okay? بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. So welcome to inshallah taala what is going to be our final lesson for this year for this academic year which is our third year of Quranic progression QP. And as I mentioned last week that inshallah taala today we're going to be focusing on another special. And it's in uh, in kind of a build up to inshallah ta'ala what I plan to do in the in this forthcoming Ramadan inshallah ta'ala which begins in a few days. May Allah Azza wa allow us all to witness the month of Ramadan and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it a month of blessing and success and reward for all of us. Um, so we've kind of finished the Qisar al-Mufassal as you know we finished up to Tafsir Surat al-Duha and inshallah ta'ala that's where we're going to, uh, in, that's where QP3 ends. And inshallah ta'ala QP4 will then begin with the tafsir of Surat Wal-Layli Idha Yaghsha. But essentially what we're focusing on today is a special on the on a, in a, on a mini biography of Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala and introduction to his tafsir. Um, and the reason why is because inshallah ta'ala I will be doing a reading and commentary of this or beginning a reading and commentary of this inshallah ta'ala in the forthcoming month of of Ramadan. So for those of you that are aware, and I'm sure pretty much most of you are, most of you are, uh, last year we did a reading in Tafsir of Jalalain. Alhamdulillah, we finished the whole of Tafsir of Jalalain last year in, in the month of Ramadan in daily three-hour sessions in the 29 days of Ramadan. We finished the whole of the Quran. And the reason why we did that reading uh, and why it was done in that way is because obviously the month of Ramadan is a month that Allah, everyone spends more time and more focused and, and dedicates more of themselves to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the study and the reading of the Quran. And one of the things that we've, you know, I'm sure everyone notices and, and you're all pretty much well aware is that the month of Ramadan is therefore also an extra focus in terms of material that, that gets put out in terms of Quran. So whether that's, you know, recitation, whether that's people doing reminders, whether that's people doing contemplations, whether that's people doing tafsir of various lengths and depths, all of that's something which, which is geared towards the month of Ramadan. To the extent now, you know, like more or less every major masjid across the world in the, in the English-speaking world, uh, you know, institutions, institutes, uh, even charities, what they're doing is all of them feel like this kind of, I don't know if it's a pressure, but they all feel the need to put some stuff out there. And usually if they're going to put something out, most of it will be to do with the Qur'an. And I myself have been approached, you know, I'm approached every year, as I'm sure many speakers are to, you know, Shaykh, can you give us a series of reminders? Can you do a series on gems from the Qur'an or pearls from the Qur'an or whatever else. And um, I have done stuff previously over the, the past years. But one of the things that last year when I was uh, thinking about this is I didn't really want to do stuff that many other speakers are already doing. Alhamdulillah, they're doing it very well. And there's so much out there already that either it's just, you know, just uh, bombarding people with the same stuff where people feel like they're, they're overpowered or overcome by this torrent of, of, of material that's put out from videos and audios and, and written material, or they have to kind of choose in terms of what it is that they want to focus on and not focus on. And, 
And so because there are so many people doing the same thing, I don't really feel the need that I, you know, there's not a gap there where I feel that no one else is doing this, so I need to do something. And I remember having this discussion last year before Ramadan, a couple of months before Ramadan, where I mentioned to some of the brothers here in my city and my local masjid, uh, I was speaking about them and saying to them that perhaps what I would rather prefer to do is do something else, like even a reading of, um, you know, of of, uh, of a book of hadith or, or something else where we do a reading of something that other people aren't really focusing on. But the brothers made a very good point and they were like, that's good and that's a nice idea, but the problem is that in, in Quran, in, in Ramadan, everyone's super focused on the Quran. And so maybe people aren't so ready to do, I don't know, a book of seerah or something else. Um, I'm not so sure personally, but I, I understand, uh, you know, and, and I can appreciate that most people are more likely to be connected with the Quran in Ramadan. And if there's that gap there, or if there's the opportunity to grasp people, to link them with the Quran, then definitely people should do that anyway, as opposed to trying to use that time maybe for other types of knowledge or other sciences of Islam. And so then the idea came to me that, well, if we're going to do that anyway, then why don't we do a full-on reading, we do something in detail, we do something that most people aren't doing or aren't really looking at, and that's we actually take classical books, uh, which is like an extension of what we're doing in QP anyway, as you know, we're very focused on the classical sciences, the classical readings of tafsir and, and the classical views of the scholars of tafsir, and we see what we can have, obviously within the limitations of time and the limitations of what's available in the English language and the limitations that we have uh, that we're surrounded by anyway. And so I chose last year Tafsir al-Jalalain and I chose Tafsir al-Jalalain even though it is not the easiest book to read because it is very common and very popular amongst Muslims across the world. Um, it is something which you know most Muslims will have in, in most Muslim madrasas and most Muslim institutions. Tafsir al-Jalalain is probably the go-to Tafsir in many of them. Uh, not only that but Tafsir al-Jalalain is relatively short for a Tafsir. In Tafsir terms it's probably one of the shorter ones that you'll come across. And there were a few English translations which were available and they weren't prohibitively expensive either. And all of those kind of factors came together and alhamdulillah we did a full reading of that tafsir and alhamdulillah uh, even though it was during COVID so I had literally no one in front of me. Uh, it was all like online but the feedback that I received and the, and the general uh, messages that we got back were very positive alhamdulillah. And it was always in my mind that if that worked really well then I would inshallah ta'ala look at doing more. And essentially what, what, we, what I wanted to do was have like a foundational tafsir, an intermediary tafsir and a advanced tafsir. And so the next step in that would, was logically going to be the book that inshallah ta'ala we're going to begin this year and that is the tafsir of Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di rahimahullahu ta'ala. And tafsir al-Sa'di is a very different book, it's a very different work compared to tafsir Jalalain in its style and in the, in the emphasis and in, in, in everything. And as you know, we spoke about Jalalain last year and the fact that it was a project between two scholars, one teacher and a student, and one had passed away and the other one came to finish up the project. It has its own unique flavor and you can see it in the way that tafsir is done. For one, it is a, what is called tafsir al-mamzuj, where the tafsir is actually embedded within the verse as, as you've seen. For those of you that have had the opportunity to watch the lessons or read the book itself, you will find that what they essentially do is that they add the tafsir in the midst of the verses and that is a certain type of tafsir. Uh, and, and tafsir Jalalain therefore is unique in the way that it does and it's something which is also very good because it, it tries to encompass all of the different main sciences of, of Quran that you would need within a tafsir. So they'll do you know, uh, balagha and, and, and Arabic language and grammar and they'll do qiraat and they'll do some fiqh and they'll add some hadith and, and they'll do what they can to the best of their ability in terms of what it is that they're setting out to do in that type of tafsir. 
Tafsir al-Sa'di is a very different work and it has a very different objective behind it. And in some ways it is easier and in some ways I think it is more difficult. But inshallah that's something which we will come on to shortly. But that was always the idea. So the idea inshallah ta'ala is that we're going to begin Tafsir al-Sa'di. But Tafsir al-Sa'di is as you know in the English uh, translation that we're going to be using which is the IIPH one uh, which, I, which I have here somewhere. The IIPH one which is the 10 volume edition. So this 10 volume edition uh, essentially is the full translation of Tafsir al-Sa'di. But the 10 volumes also means that it is much larger as a work than Tafsir al-Jalalain. And therefore, one of the things that that will mean is that we won't be able to finish the whole of the Tafsir. But the idea is, inshallah, we do as much as we can and then we continue the next day and the next day until we finish the Tafsir. And if that goes well, ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the life and the ability to continue, then inshallah ta'ala, the third stage of that in order to have that comprehensive overlook of Tafsir, a complete Tafsir, would be a reading and a commentary of Tafsir ibn Kathir that has also been translated into the English language. And I've chosen these three tafsir because they are, I think, very well established, very well known, very uh, widely accepted, and also because, frankly, in the English language, there's not many others out there either in terms of uh, classical tafsir. Even the tafsir Saadi, I think, is you know not so classical. It is more contemporary because the author, Rahimullah Taala, only died like 70, 80 years ago. But still, uh, I think because of, of what it brings to the table in terms of the English language, I think it is a worthwhile tafsir of studying. But before we go into more detail concerning that, I want to speak briefly about the author, rahimahullah ta'ala. Because when we start on the first day of Ramadan, so inshallah ta'ala, on the first uh, day of Ramadan uh, in the UK, or when we begin, we will start this uh, class and it will be broadcast from Greenland Masjid as it was last year. So. Uh, it won't be on the portal, it won't be on, on, on this particular platform, but it will be via the Greenland Masjid YouTube page. And so if you uh, know Greenland Masjid and you're familiar with it, then I would ask that you follow its uh, announcements and its Facebook page and social media, and then inshallah you'll be given the details. But the idea is that inshallah we begin on the first day of Ramadan, very much in a similar style of the reading and commentary in the way that we did Jalalain last year. And it will begin inshallah ta'ala at 3.15 p.m. UK time. 3.15 p.m. UK time and it will be two hour sessions this year as opposed to three hours. Uh, but that's inshallah something that you will be will be confirmed on their social media and so keep an eye out on that. But we don't have necessarily the time in the first lesson to go through a detailed uh, study of tafsir and, and the author of the tafsir and, and the methodology of his tafsir. And because it's one of the things that we like to concentrate anyway in our specials is something that we like to focus on then it makes sense that that's something which we cover in this final lesson of the year inshallah ta'ala so briefly um in in terms of the biography of the author and his methodology in tafsir because this could last lessons we could take lessons upon this a number of lessons but inshallah the idea today is just to give a broad overview the author is someone who's as i said not someone who lived too long ago and so if you think about it, you know, like he's of the level of our teachers. So our teachers, teachers, essentially, or maybe in some cases, you know, two levels of like teachers, teachers, teacher. So depending on the age of, of some of those, shuyukh and ulama. Uh, but there are people still living today who would have been alive in the time of the author, rahimahullah ta'ala. So they would have been fairly young, obviously, at the time, but they would still have been living during the time of the author, rahimahullah ta'ala. And so he's not someone who lived hundreds of years ago. It's not like... A Siyuti who lived, you know, like in the year in the, in the tenth century, year nine hundred and so on. So, the author, Rahimullah Taala, is from the major scholars of the last century of Saudi Arabia, uh, and he is from the major figures 
who not only was instrumental in terms of the da'wah of, 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 of spreading Islam and, and knowledge and teaching inside Arabia, but many of his students became from the major scholars as well, as we will see. The Shaykh, his full name is Abdurrahman ibn Nasir ibn Abdullah ibn Nasir ibn Hamad al-Sa'di, and is from the tribe of Banu Tamim. And Banu Tamim is a major tribe amongst the Arabs, and it's a tribe that goes back centuries. It's not like a recent tribe, but it's a well-known tribe from amongst the Arabs. And the Shaykh, his kunya is Abu Abdullah. Uh, the Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala was born in the year 1307, so 1307 of the Hijrah, in the month of Muharram, uh, which roughly corresponds to 1889. So he was born in the year 1889 of the Gregorian calendar. And he was born in a place called Uneza. Now Uneza is the main city or the capital of a province in modern-day Saudi Arabia called Qasim. So if you look at, for example, uh, you know, like northern Saudi Arabia, where modern-day Riyadh is. Riyadh and that whole area is kind of like called Najd. And Najd in classical Arabic is a very you know, far area. It goes all the way up north to Iraq. But modern-day Najd is more like Riyadh and, and that kind of area. And next to it and part of it is Qasim. And Qasim is closer to Medina. So Medina is south and Riyadh is north. And kind of in between the two uh, is Qasim. Qasim is a province. The capital of that province is called Uneza. And Uneza is the place where the Sheikh Rahimahullah Ta'ala was born in the year 1889. And the Sheikh was born in a family of people of, of, uh, of religiosity, people who had a passion for learning and seeking knowledge, but they weren't necessarily ulama, they weren't necessarily famous, but from amongst his, you know, his father, his grandfather, were people who memorized Quran, people who maybe would, would give the odd reminder here, people who maybe, for example, as was very common, and it's still common in many mosques in Saudi Arabia, what they usually do as after Salatul Asr especially, is that the Imam or someone on his behalf will, will open Riyadh al-Salihin, for example, and read a few hadith every day, just as a reminder for the congregation. So his father and grandfather, people like that, would be some of those people who would do that. So they're not ulama, ulama, uh, from the major scholars, uh, as far as I could tell from, from my readings. But at the same time, they were people who had a love for knowledge and love for, for ilm and love for, for, for doing good. But the Shaykh, his father passed away when he was, or his mother rather, passed away when he was four years old. So he was a young child and his mother passed away. And then two or three years later, his father passed away. So around the age of seven, his father passed away. So at a very young age, he's more or less an orphan. Both of his parents passed away and he's relatively of a young age. And then his stepmother, because his father remarried, his stepmother took him in, or she, he was with her anyway, but she continued to look after him. And she, it is said, according to some of, his, um, some of the biographies I've read, I read of him, that his stepmother actually used to treat him and love him and give him more care and attention than her own actual children. So, you know, than his own like step-siblings. And so she spent a lot of time uh, and, and effort with him and, and helped him and, and, and gave him a lot of care and attention. And the Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala, as he grew up and as he grew older and as he became like a young man or he reached kind of the age of puberty and the early teens age, he kind of moved under the guardianship of his older brother. And his older brother, his name was Hamad, Hamad bin Nasir al-Sa'di. And so he kind of moved under his guardianship. His brother was much older. He had a business. He had some, uh, you know, like trade that, and commerce that he did. Because the Sheikh grew up in a, in a relatively poor family. So the Sheikh wasn't someone who had a lot of wealth. Wasn't someone who, you know, his family's financial affairs were very strong. And so maybe there was a burden upon his stepmother in terms of looking after her own children as well as, uh, you know, her stepsons as well. So the Sheikh's older brother who by now is an, a man and he has his own business and so on, he kind of took on 
bought the sheikh and his brother was also someone who had that love. He inherited from his father that love of knowledge and he understood the importance of seeking knowledge and the importance of, of seeing those people. And, and this is a beautiful point that we often find, as, as we've mentioned before, when we speak about some of the biographies of other scholars, whether of tafsir or hadith or whatever. Sometimes the people around them aren't scholars. They're not students of knowledge. They don't really have that aspiration for themselves, but they understand its worth and its value and its importance. And so when they see someone from their family, from their siblings, from their children, who has that, that, that potential, has that aspiration, has that ambition, then they help to develop that and nurture that. And so they become people who enable others to go and seek knowledge. And that is very beautiful. And, and so if you look at, like for example, the Sheikh's um, general life, some of the biographies that I read actually said that the Sheikh Taala was able to spend most of his time dedicated to seeking knowledge and learning because his brother was actually willing to support him financially. Because people of that time and in that age, even at a very young age, even if they were going to go and learn to read and write and have basic, basic education, by the age of 10, 11, 12, they would start to work and start to help other family members to bring in a wage, right? which was very common even in the UK and other places in Victorian times and so on. That's the norm because people are so poor, every member of the family needs to earn their keep and needs to help draw in some money. The fact that you know the sheikhs from that type of family, the economic situation, the financial situation is pretty poor, but then he has someone who helps him to do that. It shows you the importance of having those people around you. So the sheikh was able from a young age to kind of dedicate himself to seeking knowledge. By the age of 12, he had already memorized the Quran, the book of Allah and then he began earnestly in seeking knowledge and learning. And he spent a great deal of his time, you know, some of his biographies say that he spent days and nights and you know he just kind of fully dedicated himself and fully threw himself into seeking knowledge and amongst his peers and amongst his teachers he was someone who stood out in terms of his dedication to knowledge so amongst his teachers he stood out as a, an exemplary student they would notice his intelligence his dedication his determination they could see that within him and amongst his peers he stood out in terms of being over and above them in terms of his, uh, you know, his dedication to knowledge, but also his intelligence and his understanding. And so he was someone who just fell in love with knowledge and seeking knowledge, and he spent a lot of his time doing that. Uh, some of, you know, the, the biographies that I read said that, you know, if you, uh, some of the people who knew him of that time, you know, would describe his situation very much like the early scholars of Islam, who, you know, like Imam al-Shafi and those scholars who once they dedicated themselves to knowledge, they knew nothing else in the world, right? Nothing else in the dunya mattered to them. For example, it was said about Abdullah ibn Mubarak ta'ala, that he knew the names of the narrators of the books of hadith better than he knew you know, the names of his own relatives and, and friends and neighbors and so on. And so they would say to him, you know, you know people who are narrators of hadith better than you know your own family. And he would say, yes, because that's what I spend all of my time doing. You know, I don't need, and he didn't have much time in terms of socializing with people and going to functions and, and others. And that's something which you find very common amongst the biographies of the old scholars. And so, Sheikh Abdurrahman uh, ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, you know, is often mentioned in that way as well. And by the way, just as a, uh, a point, the name Sa'di uh, is, is, is technically pronounced with the Fatha ibn Sa'di, because it is Al Sa'di. But amongst the Arabs, and especially in our time, you know, they, they usually pronounce it with the kasra. So you will often hear people saying Ibn Sa'di, Ibn Sa'di, even though it's always, even in English, is, is spelt with an A, Ibn Sa'di. And both are correct, like both are, uh, the official pronunciation would be with the fatha. But often you will find 
very commonly that people uh, pronounce it with a kasra, especially in colloquial Arabic. So he was someone who basically spent his time, rahimahullah ta'ala, seeking knowledge, and he studied the various many uh, sciences of Islam. And so he became known for his love for fiqh, and his love for aqidah, and his love for Quran and tafsir, and his love for hadith, and so on. And that's because he had an arrange, uh, a range of teachers that he benefited from, from and in and around the area of Unayza, because Unayza is a central part of the you know Arabian Peninsula. It's a, it's a main part where you had many scholars coming and visiting, and many scholars staying there, and many scholars having lived there anyway. The Sheikh Rahimullah Ta'ala developed an amazing love and a deep love for two particular figures amongst the scholars of Islam from the past. And he would read their books and he became, you know, kind of like uh, he loved their books so much that actually in his style of writing and in any of his books, by the way, and he authored many books, rahimahullah ta'ala, but he, especially in his style of writing in general, but even in his tafsir, you can see that kind of flavor, that style, you know, that kind of, uh, that similar vein, you can see it manifesting in the Sheikh. Rahimahullah Ta'ala, those two famous Imams of Islam was firstly uh, Ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah and secondly the student of Ibn Taymiyyah Ibn Al-Qayyim Alihima Rahmatullahi Ta'ala. So once he started reading their books he fell in love with them. To the extent you know like some of his students would say that even in his fiqh opinions he rarely you know goes against Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, what Ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah considered to be the strongest of views. And even, for example, in his books, many of his, much of his style and much of his writing and much of the way that he speaks and his focus, for example, on things like, uh, you know, bettering yourself and akhlaq and tazkiyah and, and looking at, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the heart and looking at how it, how it also needs to be purified alongside everything else. It has very much the style of Ibn al-Qayyim and his writings, rahimahullah ta'ala. And so the Shaykh, you can see very clearly and plainly in his in his writings that that's the way that is to the extent that even in his tafsir right not in the english version because in the english edition as they often do unfortunately is they miss out a number of the introductions that are written and other things that the author wanted to put in there and they just go straight into the tafsir without really doing anything else but actually in the arabic editions of the tafsir what you will find is that you will find that the author actually begins with the whole section that he takes about the benefits of the quran and many of the fada'il of the Qur'an and many of the important points of contemplating the Qur'an that he takes actually from, you know, more or less chapter and verse from the, the work of Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, Bada'irul Fawaid, because Ibn al-Qayyim has an amazing, uh, amazing sections on the Qur'an. As we've seen in our own tafsir studies, his, normally his, you know, his, his contemplations of the Qur'an, his tafsir of the Qur'an is very, very good rahimahullah ta'ala. And so, Shaykh Abdurrahman, actually put a whole section at the beginning of his tafsir by way of an introduction from Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. And so he's someone who basically, you know, loved that. And the Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala then just kind of became, you know, uh, someone who, who became known amongst his peers and amongst his people for knowledge. And not only for seeking knowledge, but then as we will see, for teaching knowledge as well. The Shaykh had many teachers and in fact, you know, I have a whole list of them here. But I think, uh, to be honest with you, like most of them will be names that are unknown, uh, simply because you know they're all ulama and, and shuyukh from uh, from the area of of Unayza, and most of them won't be very well known to you. But I want to pick out two or three, just so that we can we can see uh, some aspects which I think are interesting. Uh, the first of them is a sheikh by the name of Sheikh Salih ibn Uthman al Qadi, and he's from amongst the major teachers of of Sheikh Abdul Rahman ibn Saadi rahimahullah taala, and Sheikh. Salih al-Qadi was the Qadi, literally, he was the, 
judge of Unayza in that area. And so he spent a great deal of time with him and learning from him. And so the reason why I picked him out is because I wanted us to know that he studied from the major scholars of his time. And it was very common for the Qudat, for the major chief justices, the chief judges, the senior judges, the muftis, the, all of those people that they would actually spend a great deal of their time teaching as well. So it's not like what it is now where unfortunately like you know, if you're in that position where you're a mufti sometimes or you're in the position of being a very senior judge or you have a very senior position, you actually don't find any time anymore to teach because you're so busy with admin work or whatever. Actually it was very common amongst the scholars of the past even until as we can see relatively recently that even people in those positions would spend a great deal of time and effort teaching because they understood the importance of that teaching and the only way that you can prepare another generation and nurture them and prepare them to take up the mantle and to take and continue on the legacy of knowledge is by spending that time teaching in different ways. So he's one of the teachers that I wanted to mention. The, another teacher that the Shaykh had is a, name by, is a Shaykh by the name of Ali bin Nasir Abu Wadi. And Shaykh Ali Abu Wadi uh, was a major scholar of his time. And one of the things that he was known for and noted for is that he, and he's from the teachers of Shaykh Abdul Rahman al-Sa'di, and a number of the students of Shaykh Abdul Rahman ibn Sa'di, the older ones, also studied under Shaykh Ali Abu Wadi. Shaykh Ali Abu Wadi decided to go and travel to India and the Indian subcontinent. Right? And this is obviously, you know, we're still talking about like the mid-1800s, so well before Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, well before all of that stuff happens. And so the, he actually traveled there because he wanted to study hadith with the scholars, of the Ahlul Hadith and the people of Hadith in, 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 in the Indian subcontinent because the scholars of Hadith were known in the Indian subcontinent for their ijazat and for having you know that ijazat all the way back to the Prophet in books like Al-Bukhari or to the authors of, of Hadith like Al-Bukhari and Muslim and others. And so Shaykh Ali Abu Wadi was a handful of scholars because most of them didn't do this but a handful of them actually traveled to different parts of the world. Some of them went to North Africa, to Morocco, and some, some of them even went to Syria and Asham and those places. And some of them went the other direction, to places like India. And they would go and they would study this. So Shaykh Ali Abu Wadi actually studied with one of the major scholars of hadith of his generation in, 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 uh, in India. And that is a Shaykh by the name of Nadir Hussain al-Dihlawi, rahimahullah ta'ala. Shaykh Nadir Hussain is one of the major scholars of hadith in the Indian subcontinent. And many of the Asanid in hadith go back through him especially amongst the scholars of Ahlul Hadith. They will go through this one sheikh, one scholar, and this scholar dedicated his life to teaching Hadith. And from him, literally all of the major scholars of Hadith, uh, from the Ahlul Hadith, uh, you know, like uh, Aqidah, they, they essentially, all of the ijazas go through uh, Sheikh Nadir Hussain, rahimahullah ta'ala, like one man, literally. It is amazing and humbling to see how this man was able to, by his, inshallah, his ikhlas and by his, his, his dedication to teaching, how literally today and across the world, because from those ijazas, as we can see now, students will go back to the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, even today, many of our own teachers and so on will prefer that if they want to get ijazas in the works of hadith and the books of hadith in particular, they will go to the scholars of the Indian subcontinent, even till today. And that's something which we don't understand anymore because you know either we think that only scholars can come from places like Saudi Arabia or Morocco or maybe Mauritania or we have a handful of places, or because we don't really appreciate certain things in terms of their, you know, in terms of their importance and how they worked and how they kind of evolved over the time and how they developed over time. 
But India was the place, and even today, it is still the place, India and Pakistan and those places, for the ijazas of scholars of hadith. But obviously now, many people from across the world have taken those ijazas, so you don't necessarily have to go back to those scholars anymore, because scholars across the world have those ijazas, so you can find easily you know, people in, in the Arab world and North Africa and other places that will have those ijazas anyway. But the point is that in that time, no, it wasn't the case. You literally had to go. So he went and spent a good few months there, and he read to him, the, the six collections of hadith and other books and he got ijazas from him. And so Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di, when it comes to his hadith, that's who he's basically taking from. And so I want you to see the breadth of what the Shaykh ta'ala is taking from. From the teachers that he also had is a teacher by the name of Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin Mahmud al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah. This is not the Muhammad al-Amin of tafsir, the one whose tafsir we always refer to. This is a different scholar who passed well before. And this was a scholar who basically came from Mauritania and he settled in Medina. And then from Medina, he for a few years also visited Unayza and he settled there for a few years. And from the people that benefited from him was Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di. And the Mauritanians are known for their you know their strength in fiqh and usul al-fiqh and Arabic language and, and those types of sciences. And so he benefited from him greatly. The Shaykh Rahimullah began teaching at the age of 23. And uh, he spent literally the rest of his life then, until more or less the end of his life, teaching in one form or another, be that khutbas, be that giving reminders and just lectures, or be that like regular teaching. And the Shaykh Ta'ala was known for his teaching. He would essentially teach for most of the day. So what his students say is that he would have four sessions throughout the day where he would just teach. And then after or in between that, he's writing and he's answering people's questions and maybe he's giving like you know just reminders here and there and he's meeting with students and so on but he has four main lectures in his masjid the first of them is in the morning after salatul fajr so after fajr he begins teaching and that lesson will last around up until sunrise and then the sheikh would go home and he would rest and do whatever he needed to do and then he would come back in the morning so maybe a couple of hours after sunrise so it's morning time he would come back and he would teach more or less up until the time of Dhuhr or close to Dhuhr. That's the second session. Then after Dhuhr, as was very common in that part of the world, they rest. After Asr, he would teach again up until Maghrib. And then the fourth session would be after Maghrib up until Isha. And the Shaykh Ta'ala loved teaching and he had an amazing way of his students say of breaking down complex issues and teaching them and giving example after example. And he would often question his, his, his students. And, you know, if you want to see, for those of you, uh, you know, the, and because you can still find uh, the, the lectures of many of his students, his major students and their books and so on. But obviously one of his most famous students is Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen in his style of teaching does very much what Sheikh Ibn Sa'di has said that he used to do, which is that he asks questions often. Like even though the Sheikh may have, you know, hundreds of students, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen would stop and he would ask someone, you know, what do you say? What do you think? And why is that? And why is this? And he would prompt people to see that they're paying attention and he would uh, actively engage with his students. That's something which Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di used to do. In fact, they say that Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di sometimes would actually say something incorrect on purpose. He would purposefully say something wrong to see which one of his students is A, paying attention and B, has grasped the issue correctly to say, actually, Shaykh, I think you're mistaken or I think actually, you know, uh, that doesn't make sense or something. He wanted to see from them by testing them in that way. And that's essentially what he would do. Um, and the Sheikh had an amazing character. He was very gentle with his students and very forthcoming. It is said that when Sheikh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di first started teaching, literally he only had a handful of students. Literally only like three, four, five students would come and sit with him. 
but he didn't mind, he didn't care that he only had two or three or four or five, as many of the scholars often did. You know, this Sheikh Nadir Hussein would often have one student at a time. One person would come and say, I want to read Al-Bukhari with you from beginning to end, Sahih Al-Bukhari. And he would say, okay. And he wouldn't say, look, that's going to take too much time. Why don't you get 100 people together and we'll do it once. And that way all of you benefit. He wouldn't mind reading with them. And then as he's finishing or before he even finishes, someone else comes and says, I want to read Bukhari. Okay, he's already reading Bukhari. But yeah, but I can't just join him because he's already read like three, four, five hundred thousand hadith, whatever he's done. I want to start from the beginning. So, okay, he starts from the beginning. And the amount of dedication that takes to give people that one-on-one thing if they need that, because a lot of these people are traveling from different parts of the world as they did to Sheikh Nadir Hussain. They would come from different parts of the Indian subcontinent and beyond. And so he would give them that time. Sheikh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di was very much similar. He allowed people to come, even if there was two or three, and he would teach them irrespective. Sheikh Abdul Thaymeen, rahimahullah, I remember someone telling me a story that he narrated to them. And I didn't hear this story directly from the Sheikh, but from someone who heard it from the Sheikh. And he said that one of the first things that I studied with uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah, was the book of Al-Qawa'id of Ibn Rajab. Ibn Rajab, rahimahullah, is a book on Qawa'id fiqhiyya, which is considered to be a very complex work of his. Not an easy to read, not an easy study for anyone. And so he said that I started with the Sheikh and there were only like five, six students. He said by like halfway through, I was the only one left. And so I would go and read the Sheikh by myself until we finished the book. He said when we finished the book, the Sheikh was happy. Like he would often reward his students and shower praise upon them, especially if they managed to stick out something when other people were like dropping. So he said that I met the Sheikh after a day or two and Sheikh Nathimin is young in age. And the Sheikh, he said, I have something for you because we finished a book and I want you to get you a gift. So he said he took out from his pocket an apple. Sheikh Nathimin said, I'd never seen an apple in my life. I'd heard of apples. I knew the word for an apple, but I, we never saw, saw an apple. People were poor and apples are from the fruits of uh, Arabia. So I said to the Sheikh, what is this? And he said, this is a tufah, right? This is a apple. And so Ibn Taymin said to him, Shaykh Ibn said to him, Oh, that's an, this is an apple? This is what it is? And he said, yes. He said, it's a gift for you. Take it and eat it. So the Sheikh said to him, how do I eat it? <laughs> what do I do with this? Do I have to peel it? Do I boil it? What, do I, what is this? Or like, how do I, because they're used to dates, does it have a stone? Like, how do I consume this? And the Sheikh said to him, all you got to do is cut it up or take a bite from it and eat it. You don't need to do anything. Don't need to worry about anything. So, Shaykh says that I actually took it home to my family and we sliced it into small slices and I shared it with them because it was something that none of them had seen. But it shows you the character of Shaykh Ibn Sa'di and his love for teaching and his love for his students and his dedication towards them. Shaykh Ibn Sa'di was offered many positions during his lifetime in terms of official government positions from being a judge to you know many other like official positions that would have given him status and obviously a wage and other things but he w- refused them all and he refused them on the basis that he wanted to spend his time dedicated to teaching and his students were very much similar Shaykh Ta'ala, even though he was a member of the panel of senior scholars but he refused to ever move to Mecca or Riyadh or Medina one of the major cities where you know people are more likely to to go in terms of knowledge and you have the Haramain and, and other places he dedicated, dedicated himself to simply teaching. Shaykh al spent his life dedicated to teaching, sitting in the same masjid where his teacher sat, rahimahullah ta'ala, which was the Jami' al-Kabir, the main masjid of Unayza. And Shaykh al-Sa'idi became the imam of that masjid, and he spent his time there, rahimahullah ta'ala. And 
essentially his whole life is one of study. Uh, the Sheikh authored many, many books, and there are too many of them to go through. And he has some very nice books. I want to mention just two or three. Obviously, the first one is the one that we're going to be reading, inshallah, and doing a commentary of, which is his famous tafsir. And this tafsir he wrote and he finished by the time he was 37 years old. So it took him about four years or so to read and study uh, and write, sorry. And he essentially finished it by the age of 37. Um, he also has a number of other books on Quran and those are the ones that I want to mention because his list of books are way too many as books in Hadith and in Fiqh and in Qawaid al-Fiqiyya and in many other different sciences. Uh, and also just in general, Raqaiq and Heart Softness. He has many nice books, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. But one of the two books that I would also recommend uh, that are in Arabic, but two books which are very closely linked to the tafsir and also very nice books is the first, a book called Al-Qawaid Al-Hisan, Beautiful Principles in Understanding the Quran. And essentially it's him extrapolating principles of the Quran. Some of them are usul al-tafsir principles or principles of tafsir and others are principles of contemplation in the sense that he's just noticed that something is the norm or the convention in the Quran and so he mentions it. So it's not necessarily strictly a principle of tafsir or a principle of ulum al-Quran or the science of the Quran but it is something that he noticed is the norm in the Quran and so he extrapolates from them and it shows you that book more I think so anyway in my humble opinion more so than his tafsir shows you the depth of his knowledge and understanding of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how much time he must have dedicated just simply to contemplating the Quran because some of those principles are amazing and some of those principles I you know I don't think you can come across in many other books that are similar and it is a very nicely written book it's not too too big either a couple hundred pages but it is a nice book to to be written and one that deserves to be translated and studied in the English language. Another of his books that is also similar is a book that he called Al-Mawahib Al-Rabbaniya. Al-Mawahib kind of means gifts. Rabbani is obviously uh, you know, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, divine gifts. And they're essentially his contemplations from the Quran. So it's not tafsir, but contemplations that he has from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like Ibn Qayyim often does in his works, he has and he embeds within his books uh, you know, contemplations. Because Ibn, Ibn Qayyim never actually authored a tafsir. What Ibn Qayyim did is he embedded many of his uh, you know, tafsirs and, and contemplation of the Qur'an in, in his other works. And other scholars, or you know, later times, not too long ago, scholars came and they extrapolated all of those together and they put them into what they called his tafsir Ibn Qayyim. But as far as I know, Ibn Qayyim has tafsir of selected chapters of the Qur'an, like Surah Falaq and other, other things, but actually in terms of doing a full-on tafsir from beginning to end, as far as I know, he never wrote one in that way, in the way that we would think that a tafsir is authored, but it is spread across his works and those those sayings of his and writings have been gathered together. So the Shaykh has a number of, of works when it comes to uh, tafsir and that's something which uh, inshallah ta'ala I think is also very good in terms of us being able to see and benefit from his work in the Quran. Uh, the Sheikh had many uh, students as well. I will, uh, obviously, Sheikh Ahmed Thaymin is his perhaps most famous student and the one that people know very well. And Sheikh Ahmed Thaymin is very similar to his teacher in terms of his uh, style of teaching, in terms of his style of writing, in terms of of his of his character and so on. I think he he uh, he benefited a lot from uh, his teacher, Rahimahullah Taala. But the Sheikh has many many other students, too many for us to mention here, and I think most of them are not very well known. But from amongst them, Sheikh Abdullah bin Aqil. Rahimahullah Ta'ala, who was perhaps one of his uh, most uh, oldest students in terms of he was from his earliest students and he lived the longest, well after Sheikh Minathimin and he only died approximately like 10, maybe 12, 15 years ago, so not too long ago, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. 
the Sheikh himself, Abdul Rahman ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah, he died in the year uh, 1957. And in the last three or four years he, of his life, he essentially became ill and his health wasn't too good and he had to even travel uh, to other parts, like he went to, for example, Lebanon for, for, medical, uh, for medical reasons. He, he went there for, for uh, treatment. And then he came back, alhamdulillah, he was okay, but generally speaking, he was getting weaker and weaker. And so the author, rahimahullah ta'ala, Shaykh Abdul Rahman ibn Sa'di, he died at the age of 69 in the year 1376 of the Hijrah, which approximately uh, correlates to 1957. So 1957, rahimahullah ta'ala, he passed away, and he was buried in his city of Unayza, rahimahullah ta'ala. So that's a brief biography of the Shaykh, rahimahullah. Obviously, there's a lot more that can be said, but we don't have really the time to go into that. And I think what we've mentioned is enough for us to know something of who the author is, rahimahullah ta'ala. In terms of the methodology of the tafsir, I'm going to speak about generally broadly, in broad terms, some of the benefits of this tafsir and some of his methodology. And I think that his methodology and his style will become very clear in the reading itself. And so that's something, inshallah ta'ala, that we will benefit from. Uh, Shaykh Ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, it is said that the reason for his writing and authoring this tafsir, and as I said, you know, it is said that he finished this around the age of 37. Uh, some of his students mentioned that what the Sheikh would, would do, one of his reminders every day for his masjid, for the people, his congregation in the masjid, was that he would do tafsir. So he started from the beginning of the Quran and he would make tafsir. So maybe perhaps, you know, for example, 15-20 minutes a day, maybe just before Maghrib or just before Isha or between the Adhan and the Qama, he would give tafsir. His student says then what he would often do is as soon as he had finished praying, so for example, if it's Isha, he would have his own entrance because he was the Imam. So the Imam has his own entrance and his house is not too far away. What he would do is he would leave straight away from his entrance and go straight home. Wouldn't talk to anyone, wouldn't meet anyone, wouldn't be diverted by any questions or anything else. And he would literally go home and the first thing that he would do is he would sit down and he would write out his tafsir. He would write out basically the lesson that he just gave in the masjid. And doing this over time and over time, you know, is something which benefited him greatly, rahimahullahu ta'ala. And this is something which some of the scholars of the past mentioned. They said that one of the best ways of authoring is that you do something every day, even if it's only a page or a few lines, but you will find that if you keep up that consistency every day, then over time you are able to finish writing what you wish and finishing your projects. The book, uh, Tafsir ibn Sa'di, and there are many editions of Tafsir ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, many uh, versions of, and prints that have been done. This is uh, the particular one that I have, which is obviously the Arabic. Uh, but this uh, one is a single volume one, and I think you can get now some that are, are a few volumes maybe, even in the Arabic. But anyway, it's been printed and published a number of times with different editions, and you will find sometimes differences even in those editions as well. Um, essentially, the Shaykh, rahimahullah ta'ala, his style of tafsir is a very, is, is, a, is a style of having a very comprehensive overview of tafsir. So his essential style is to speak about the main benefits of the verse, the main meaning of the verse, uh, and the main messages that you can benefit from the verse. So for example, when we did Tafsir al-Jalalin, one of the things that I think was probably very clear is that one of the things that the two Jalaluddin's don't do is they don't really speak about practical benefits or how it applies to you, or for example, lessons that you can learn. It's a very technical Tafsir. It's a good Tafsir for a student of Tafsir because it benefits them in terms of this is what it means, and this is the qiraat, and this is, and it's a very technical tafsir. 
that tafsir isn't necessarily the tafsir that benefits, for example, most people, especially you know, like beginning students of tafsir or even just general Muslims who want to learn and study some tafsir. And that's why I think that this tafsir in some ways is a nicer and easier tafsir to, to study from that point of view. It does get technical at times, as we will mention, but generally speaking, it is a tafsir that is focused on the overarching meaning of the main points of having that over and overview and understanding of what it is that the message of that verse or, that, or the message of the Qur'an generally and the message of the surah and the verse is. And so the Shaykh in his style is very much of the style of the scholars of the past like Ibn Kathir and others in terms of the tafsir that is very much focused on the traditional method of tafsir. So much of his tafsir is based on you know, tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an or tafsir of the Sunnah, Qur'an with the Sunnah or tafsir with the statements of the scholars and the, the tabi'een and the companions and so on. But he doesn't necessarily do that for every verse. That's the basis of his tafsir. And the reason you know that that's the basis is because if you were to, for example, compare his tafsir with Ibn Kathir and others, you would find that he generally doesn't go out of the view of a tabari and Ibn Kathir and the major scholars of tafsir. He won't have his own kind of like, you know, view, which, which you don't find anywhere else. And so he kind of bases that on that. But because of the brevity of the tafsir and the style of tafsir, he doesn't necessarily say, oh, and Ibn Kathir said. Or, for example, that Ibn Abbas said. Right? And so he doesn't necessarily pinpoint this except on occasion, which he does. On occasion, he will mention uh, this is the verse in the Quran that this refers to, and this is the hadith, and this is, for example, the statement of this companion, or for example, Mujahid said, or whatever. He does do that on occasion, but it is not the norm, and it is not something which he does commonly. And even in Jalalain, it's not done very commonly in that way because when you have a brief tafsir, you want to do a tafsir in a single volume. You don't have the scope to start going into names and that type of detail. But essentially, that's what he wants to do. And that's because the Shaykh, as he mentions in his own introduction, the goal is to make tafsir accessible and easy for the average reader, for the average Muslim. So remember, this is a tafsir in its essence. It's done for the congregation of his masjid. Who are the congregation? you got elderly people, you got young people, you got just average Muslims, and you have students of knowledge. And so essentially what he's doing is that he's trying to do something for all of those groups of people. And that's why Shaykh al-Uthaymi would recommend this tafsir as a general tafsir. If you want to have a good starting point for tafsir, a tafsir where you don't have to worry about all oh, mistakes or aqidah issues or you know issues where there may be problematic uh, problems in terms of belief and, and, um, uh, and, and theology and those types of issues, the tafsir of Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'id is very good. On top of that, he's someone who has a very strong grasp of the Arabic language of fiqh, of usul, of qawaid, and that's essential because when you make tafsir, you have to understand what are the main objectives of the sharia and the main goals and how it works. And because obviously the Qur'an is the basis for all of those sciences and knowledge and therefore everything is connected to it. Um, the Shaykh Ta'ala, you will find, therefore has a very strong emphasis in his Qur'an, in his tafsir on issues of aqidah, on issues of iman, uh, on issues of, for example, you know, raising people's iman and their spirituality and their faith and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of extrapolating benefits for them. It's something which you will find across his tafsir. And even if you were just to look, for example, if you have, for those of you that have the English, even if you just look at the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha, the way that it's done and the style in which it's written, you can see that the Shaykh isn't just wanting to speak about the technical issues of the tafsir, or of the verses, in technical I mean, you know, this is the Arabic part that you need to do and this is whatever, right? Uh, but rather it's a very nice comprehensive tafsir and overview in terms of meanings, right? And so that's a very different style of tafsir. 
when you go into a great deal of depth, even as we do in QP. So when we're going into a great deal of depth, of, of depth in terms of you know the opinions of scholars and, and, and the different nuances and the Arabic and this and that, some things sometimes it is difficult to remember the overarching meaning of the verse and what it is. You know, and even though I may I try to do this at times, I don't think I necessarily do it successfully because when you go into that level of depth and detail, it is hard to pull back and keep that as well. And so you often find either the Jalalain style, which is very technical, or the other style like Ibn Sa'di, which is not so technical, but rather it speaks about the overarching meaning. And both of them have their place, right? And depending on your level and what it is that you want to achieve from your tafsir, you know, both of them are actually very beneficial as well. But I think that inshallah, this will be an enjoyable tafsir. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's something which uh, is going to present its own challenges in terms of doing a commentary on it because of the style in which it is done. The Shaykh Rahimullah Ta'ala then so he spends a great deal of effort talking about things like tazkiyah, right? Purifying yourself and purifying the heart and purifying your soul and ordering the good and forbidding the evil and, and just generally reminding people of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and bringing them closer to Allah Azza wa Jal. And his style is very nice. The Shaykh's words, his style of writing, his style of, of speech is very easy, even in the Arabic language. It is a nice, easy read and it is enjoyable to read. And you will find within it, for those of you that are familiar with the with the writings, especially of Ibn Qayyim, most of the Ibn Taymiyyah, because Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, is far more technical in his writing and far more academic in his writing. Ibn Qayyim is academic also, but he has, Allah Azza wa Jal gave him a beauty of writing, especially when he speaks about things like purifying your soul and so on. He has a very beautiful style of writing. And so, Shaykh Ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah, takes very much from that as well. He takes very much from that style of writing as well. So uh, that's another point of his tafsir. The Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala uh, also from his uh, from the things that he focuses on is he mentions what he thinks is important and pertinent to the verse. So if he thinks, for example, this is a fiqh discussion that requires some, some explanation, he will speak about it. So for example, if he's speaking about, for example, issues of inheritance or certain issues of divorce, be that from a fiqhi point of view, that I, this is something that I need to mention. This is the evidence for the strongest opinion on this issue. For example, this is the verse that is the basis for why I think that this is the view that is the correct opinion on this issue, on this mas'ala. Or this is the benefit that people should extrapolate in terms of living their lives, in terms of marriage and divorce and inheritance. And so it's something which he focuses a great deal on, rahimahullah ta'ala, which also give, gives obviously its own benefit in terms of the tafsir that he is doing. Uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman ibn Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, is very focused, as we said, on the tafsir of the salaf. And one of the things that he does is his extrapolations, his deductions, his contemplations are very much based upon the general qawaid of the sharia. So he often connects it back to iman, often connects it back to commanding the good and forbidding the evil, often connects it back to, you know, your standing before Allah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So he looks at the overall uh, overarching objectives of the Sharia, and then he will often, where he it is needed, he will mention those points as to how it relates to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that means that the Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala doesn't necessarily, right, doesn't necessarily go into certain issues that we were accustomed to in Tafsir al-Sa'di. So for example, he doesn't necessarily go into lots of issues of Arabic nuance, grammar and sarf and those types of issues that you will find in certain types of tafsir. He doesn't go into, for example, a great deal of qiraat. And when he does mention it, and he does mention it a few times, it is normally in passing, without really delving into the detail. Whereas, as we saw in Jalalain, for example, that's a tafsir that tried to bring in a lot of qiraat as well. 
right? So Sheikh Ibn Sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala doesn't necessarily delve into the issue of qira'at. Uh, he doesn't, he has like a general methodology where he tries to avoid Israeliyat. So Israelite traditions, as we saw in Jalalin, and it's very common in most of Fahseer, that they will mention stories from the people of the book and uh, traditions from the people of the book and Israelite traditions, very common. Sheikh Ibn Sa'di kind of has a methodology that he doesn't want to delve into that. That it's something which, even though it's permissible for you to narrate, he thinks that it is something that the scholars of Tafsir sometimes do too much of. And because it doesn't have a basis in our Sharia, we don't know about its authenticity, sometimes he skews the Tafsir towards that particular story that we don't even know if it's authentic or not. So he generally avoids Israeliyat and speaking about them and referring to them and basing his Tafsir upon them right and that's generally a methodology that he also has rahimahullah ta'ala but instead what he will do is he will extrapolate his own lessons from stories of the quran and from other things as well that's generally basically his methodology of quran uh, in a very summarized way and i wanted to do as a summarized way rather than you know breaking down each issue and giving examples from his book and so on number one because we're actually going to do a reading Unlike, for example, when we did Tabari, where we didn't do a reading, so I thought it was beneficial to actually make exceptions and speak about examples, because otherwise maybe most of us wouldn't really understand or have the opportunity to actually go back to that tafsir. But Ibn Sa'di's is a tafsir that, inshallah ta'ala, we're actually going to be reading and doing a commentary of as much as we can. And so therefore, you know, it's something which we will see practically with Allah ta'ala on a daily basis throughout the month of Ramadan. And also because, you know, the, the lesson will just become too long once I start going into that type of detail. So that's essentially, inshallah ta'ala, is what we're going to be focusing on in the month of Ramadan. And I hope that Allah Azza wa gives us the ability and the tawfiq to do it. And I hope that it's something which is beneficial and helps people to connect with the Quran. It is definitely something that I would recommend this particular tafsir reading and commentary. More so than perhaps even Jalalain. I think Jalalain still has a place and there is an amazing tafsir study, especially for QP students and people who are serious students of the Quran. But I think Tafsir al Saadi, you will see from it a very different style of Tafsir and a very different, um, you know, like there's a very different taste to it in terms of the benefit and in terms of, inshallah ta'ala, what you will take from it in the study of the Book of Allah. Azza so if there's any questions um, or anyone has any specific points that they want to raise, then please do so. Uh, otherwise, inshallah ta'ala, I think we can conclude for today and obviously. Concluding for today also means concluding for this academic year. So whilst uh, you're typing up any questions that you may have or any points, let me just say that inshallah, uh, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he keeps us all safe and blesses us and that Allah azza wa gives us the ability to return to normal times in, 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 in a way that is beneficial to us and brings khair and barakah for us and, and others. Uh, in terms of you know, announcements, revision sessions, exams, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would ask that you would uh, please, inshallah, keep in touch with the Telegram group. So all of the announcements will be made on there. More so perhaps than even emails. So emails, you know, probably will be sent out. But I think that we're moving generally away from bombarding people with emails and emails going to people's junk folder and people miss stuff and whatever. And kind of focusing more on the Telegram groups that we have. And so please keep an eye on them. Clearly nothing's going to happen until after Ramadan. But after Ramadan, in terms of revision sessions, in terms of exam dates, in terms of restarting, but obviously restarting won't be until after Hajj, right? So, you know, let's let's make that clear, inshallah ta'ala. Whether there's a Hajj or not, obviously still remains to be seen. Uh, but after Hajj, in terms of after Eid al-Adha, um, that's something which will, which will be the case. Um, so if you have any questions, let me just see. Just to clarify, will you be covering one volume of the Tafsir each Ramadan until it's complete? 
No, we're attempting to do more than one volume, right? So the idea is we do as much as we can until the end. I can't give you an exact amount because I honestly don't know. This is very different to Jalalain. You know, Jalalain was also three hours. This is two hours. It's a different style of tafsir. Uh, you know, Sheikh Ibn Saadi has more or less done all the hard work anyway. I don't actually think there's much need for a commentary, but I think it's beneficial because otherwise people wouldn't necessarily read this book. So I think it's a nice way to do it. But I, uh, in terms of how much, you know, even if you can do two or three volumes, split this over four years, I think that, that would be amazing. Uh, so, uh, but in terms of exactly how much, I don't know. So please forgive me. But inshallah, we will see. I think within the first few days and, and the first week or so, you'll, you'll kind of have an idea of how much we're progressing. Uh, just to give an indication, like last day of Jalalain, I think we approximately, a juz was like 30 or so, 35 pages per juz. This is like 75, 80 pages per juz. So it's like, even in terms of content, it is much more than Jalalain, right? And so that's why it's it's going to take longer. Okay. Um, do you know what time the live classes will be in duration of each class? So each class will be two hours, as I said, and 3.15 is the time we're looking at UK time. And that's because clearly at the moment, you know, like things are still under isolation. We still have uh, restrictions of COVID. We still have social distancing and so on. And so I can't actually have people in the masjid. So it's between Dhuhr and Asr, but there's other factors that have to be determined as well. But if you follow the social media of Greenland Masjid, if there are any changes or anything needs to be uh, announced, it will be announced there. And inshallah, once I have like the posters and stuff, I will put them up or ask someone to put them up onto the QP chat groups as well. Okay, can we please not have such a long, long break from QP? Um, so, you know, the reason why there's always been a long break between Ramadan until after, like, Hajj. I mean, Ramadan is busy. Like, it's, 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 you know, essentially if there's Taraweeh, which they may well be this year as well, I will be doing Taraweeh plus the Tafsir. So it is, a, it is a very busy time. And the reason why we used to continue until Hajj is because most of us, or, you know, myself, Sheikh Isa and others, we're busy with Hajj groups usually. So what we normally do is we spend that time prepping our Hajj groups and getting ready for that. And that takes a great deal of time as well. And so that's usually the reason. Obviously, last year, this year has been slightly different. But I think it's a nice time for people to have a break anyway. I think to, to recharge your batteries, to revise over your notes, to get ready for an exam, I think is essentially important. Because just to read and learn and listen, but you haven't retained much or you haven't revised anything, isn't necessarily beneficial. True knowledge is when you actually take what you have and you, you've benefited from it. And that requires a certain amount of revision and so on. And so I think that that's something which, inshallah, uh, will be helpful but anyway if there are changes or anything please keep up with the uh, telegram group and that's something which you will have can we have a telegram group for tafsir al-sa'di yes i mean if someone wants to set one up and i think last year someone set one up for jalalain from what i heard i don't know i wasn't part of it uh, and i don't know who did it but if someone wants to amongst yourselves you are more than welcome to I, it's not something which i will be starting though but if someone wants to take the lead on the on the on the telegram group that we already have someone says look i'm going to start up a new one or someone wants to uh, you know like volunteer to be the admin or the people who did last year want to do it that's that's for you to do i have no issue with that in terms of people doing that uh will the format be the same as jalalain with the recital of the arabic alongside the english yes so it will be read by the same brother inshallah ta'ala that did the reading last year so he will do the reading whether that's reciting the verses of the quran or reading the english because we're going through the english not the arabic we're going through this so we're not reading the Arabic, we're reading the translation that's been done uh, by the IIPH. We're using, I think there's more than one edition from what I heard now. Someone else has done a translation, but this is the one that we will be using anyway. And you can get a PDF of it. I mean, if you don't want to spend the 100 and whatever, 50 pounds it is that it costs, um, you're, you're more than welcome to get the PDF. 
and, and, and that's what we're going to be going through. So it will be very much the same style in terms of someone's doing the reading and I will inshallah ta'ala be doing the commentary. I think you mentioned writing notes on this will be challenging. Can you elaborate please? No, I don't think writing notes will be challenging. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about me doing the, the notes is challenging in terms of my own notes, personal notes, not, not for anyone else. Uh, okay, if you start after Hajj, that's fine, but not late August and September. Anyway, keep an eye on the Telegram group, inshallah ta'ala. I don't exactly have dates for you at the moment. Okay, so Jazakumullah Khairan, I think that covers all of the points that we have. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He keeps you all safe and may Allah Azza wa make things easy for all of us. And I hope that inshallah ta'ala you will be actively uh, you know, part of this reading and commentary of Tafsir al-Sa'di, whether you're doing it live or whether you're watching it later on because of time differences. I understand that it may not be the best time for most people, but it's very difficult to find a time that suited everyone, especially because there's schools and there's many things going on in people in different countries that is very difficult to find a time, plus the mischief with all of its restrictions and so on. Uh, and I know this is probably not the best time because it's bang in the middle of the day, but I hope that inshallah ta'ala it is something which, because it's two hours, is not so difficult either to, to catch up on and to keep up with bidnillahi ta'ala. So jazakumullah khairan and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes things easy for all of us and may Allah azza wa jal unite us always upon good and upon knowledge and seeking knowledge. And uh, I want to thank you for your uh, participation this year and your patience with us and everything that we've had to go through. And inshallah ta'ala things will get better from here on on. Jazakumullah khairan wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.